Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Caged In podcast, you bullshit artist. Hello and welcome to Caged In, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilavus. We are here for a very special Caged In conversation this week with the director of the Lego Batman movie, The Tomorrow War, and the brand spanking new Nicolas Cage film, Renfield. It is, of course, Chris McKay. This was a fantastic conversation I had with him about all things Renfield, all things Nicolas Cage. This conversation basically divulged into a Nicolas Cage kind of nerd out, which is something I am prone to do here. So was very happy that it got to that place. And Chris was an absolute gent. This is a nice, uh, hefty 45-minute conversation about all things, as I said, Renfield, and most importantly... Uh, for my son at least, and maybe some of you listening out there, we get the closest to the definitive answer of how many Lego bricks it took to make the Lego Batman movie. So, oh, exciting, exciting stuff. So, yeah, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Chris McKay. Whoa, 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 whoa. One last thing before we get into this episode. Chris McKay does a massive spoiler for this film. So if you have not seen it, when you hear the following noise, just skip 15 seconds and you'll be in the all clear and ready to go. Now, enjoy my conversation with Chris McKay. So I'm joined on the podcast today by the director of Renfield, Chris McKay. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good. How are you doing? You all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very well. I got to see the film a couple of days ago. and I've just got to commend you on the kind of uh, tightrope act of kind of balancing the tonal shifts of comedy, <laughs> horror and heart. Like... How how does it feel? Obviously, well, it's like a year out since you wrapped filming. Like, how has that time in between been trying to find that kind of balance for you with this film? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was fortunate. Obviously, it starts with a really good script, and <laughs> and uh, when you hire Nick Holt and Nick Cage to do these performances, that you're kind of spoiled for choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
as far as that goes. I mean, you know, the, the, doing a horror comedy is, you know, there's, 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 there's very few good ones. And uh, <laughs> so we kind of knew that there was going to be a challenge, but I just thought, you know, this idea of like seeing Dracula through the lens of his assistant, through the lens of a, of a codependent relationship with a toxic narcissist boss from hell uh, played by Nicolas Cage uh, as some, as, as a, as a, you know, kind of rock and roll Dracula uh-huh. uh, that, that seemed like a lot of fun and uh, seemed like the, you know, like, I'm always looking for something that's like original and new and, and, and at least takes like a, at least a fresh spin on something. And so in, in a world where you could have just done a regular Dracula movie to do one. Yeah. Through this lens of his assistant just felt like, you know, felt like something that's like really special. And, and I was really, really happy to work with cage and work with Holt because they're just wonderful actors and really giving and game. Well, I'm, I'm really interested to know where your kind of origins for your love of horror kind of come from. Cause from looking at like your previous work, like even going back as far as Robot Chicken or even the Lego Batman, you've kind of peppered Dracula in throughout those projects. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so what were the kind of movies you ought to watch as a kid that kind of got you into horror? Uh, probably the first uh, horror movies I saw actually were the um, Hammer horror movies from the fifties and sixties. So when I was a kid, um, this this TV station, um, I, I grew up in Chicago, mm-hmm. and this TV station um, would play uh, would would play a you know a, a, a block of movies mm-hmm. every week, and they usually were on a theme. So so you do Universal Monsters Week or King Kong Week or uh, in this case Hammer Week, where so I saw Horror of Dracula, I saw the Oliver Reed. Um, you know, werewolf mm-hmm. uh, movies, especially doing Frankenstein, all that kind of thing. Um, and so that's probably like the first stuff that I got to see where I got to see these characters. Cause I don't, don't think it, they played the universal stuff till later. So I saw, I saw the hammer stuff first and obviously it was in color and it was these beautiful sets. And, um, and I remember, and I remember the horror of Dracula, the specifically the ending, which we try to mimic a little bit of in our movie, um, because I wanted the beginning of our movie to feel like the third act of somebody else's uh-huh. Dracula movie. So I so the horror of Dracula ends with Peter Cushing running across this table, leaping for the drapes, pulling the drapes down and having the sunlight hit uh Dracula and then Dracula melting and you know into this puppet. Uh, this little fakey looking puppet that they did, uh, you know, which was, uh, we were obviously very inspired by in our movie because we do the same sort of thing where the vampire hunter shoots out the, the drapes and the drapes fall and Dracula goes on fire. And then, uh, you get to see sort of a puppet version of Dracula there as he's destroyed. And that kind of starts, you know, that, that hopefully that's the signal of the audience that, Hey, look, this is, this is where Dracula's story in, in these movies kind of ends mm-hmm. and we're Renfield, you know, Renfield's story kind of takes over and that's kind of, you know, kind of how we, why we started like that. But, but obviously it's drawing on these, these, these films that meant something to me as a kid. Obviously you evoke the 1931 Todd Browning film. Was there like a, an element of trepidation with that? Or were you kind of like all gung ho to be like, we want to pay tribute to this and kind of have it there in the DNA. Cause obviously like you, you kind of, yeah, you kind of superimpose Cage and Hulk's faces into that movie as well. So, like, it's yeah. not just referencing it. It's like we're we're fully showing, we're, we're, uh, yeah. we're retconning that stuff almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, 
I, I wanted to find as many ways to show love to these old movies as I could, but obviously not in a way where it's like bogging down the narrative or whatever. And, uh, and, and so whenever I could throw an Easter egg in, I would. And in this particular case, I also wanted there to be a real history with Holt and Cage as Renfield and Dracula. Mm -hmm. And by combining our heroes, by compositing our heroes into the, you know, staircase scene in the Todd Browning movie and putting Cage up on mm -hmm. the staircase, that image that we've all, whether you've seen the movies or not, you've seen that image somewhere, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's been parodied in Family Guy or Simpsons or a poster or something or in a, in a montage of clips of things, you've seen that thing. You know, I, you know, I mean, I am Dracula. Um, and that just, to me, there was a great way to do an homage, but it was also a great way of creating a real relationship that the audience can feel. Because again, maybe this is part of our collective unconscious or pop culture. And you just kind of like feel that these guys have been together, the oldness mm -hmm. and graininess of the footage and the, you know, the, 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 the way it's sort of shot, you know, these angles that people are using, so like that, just kind of creates a history, yeah, shared yeah. history with these guys. And that was what was important to me about it, really, at the end of the day. It played so well in the screening I was in, just like the sudden change of aspect ratio. And obviously, like for the silly literate, it was like a great yeah. kind of like, moment yeah. of ah oh, they're, they're, they're doing it and it's kind of like it's, it's it's a real it's a real ballsy move um speaking of like ballsy moves obviously this film yeah i think you could say is quite ballsy so like when you first saw the script what kind of leapt out to you was there something ballsy in it that kind of grabbed you and said oh i want to direct yeah. this yeah the fact, the fact that they weren't just doing, you know, another Dracula movie where, you know, that we've all seen done a million times and even just any, even the movies that aren't about Dracula sort of take, you know, some of the beats from Dracula, mm -hmm. the, you know, the original Dracula story. Um, the fact, yeah, the fact that they were just doing, you know, Cage when he, when he read, he's like, this is, you know, this is really brave that, that, you know, that these guys are going to do a movie like this. Um, and I think it was just, yeah, the fact that they're just, they're going to, you know, the the the, the Universal was going to let us make a movie about Dracula, but through the lens of his assistant, it's going to be about codependency, and it's going to, you know, had what I thought, you know, at least what I, you know, it's it's not all in there in the script, but what felt like splat stick humor, mm -hmm. you know, that that there was that there was that, and that that got me really excited because I'm a big like Sam Raimi and early Peter Jackson fan, you know, of that, of that of evil dead Two and dead mm -hmm. alive and that sort of thing. So the idea that you could do something like that with a studio budget or, you know, like <laughs> what, what do for an R-rated movie that seemed like a lot of fun. Um, and, and being able to play with a color palette because obviously this movie is because it's a horror comedy and because modern you know, horror comedies that you can't do, like, I, I don't think, you know, you can't do like straight parody. You can't do mm -hmm. the, dracula dead and loving it version anymore or any of that sort of thing you kind of have to ground this in a world that feels still feels like that world because i think people i think that i think you know i the, you know i love those movies airplane and naked gun and all that stuff but i just don't think that like people are people are um in a movie like this i don't think that people are um as willing to go there or invest in it and i knew they needed to kind of invest in these characters if you're going to do a codependent relationship you got to care it can't be yeah. surface level you got to kind of care about these guys. And that's why you got to hire Nick Holt. That's why you got to hire Nick Cage. That's why you got to ground it in something that feels quasi real at yeah. times as much as 
much as you can, much as you can make it feel real and, <laughs> and earn. And I think the relationship between Nick and Nick, the Renfield and Dracula relationship, regardless of anything else in the movie, those two guys are really playing it. They're playing all the humor, but they're also playing all the drama and all of, you know, Dracula is truly, you know, he's, he's manipulative. If, if one moment he's love bombing Renfield, the next minute he's menacing Renfield, the next minute he's gaslighting Renfield. And he's really, truly playing a true narcissist, like going through all of the, you know, the lack of empathy, the, the grandiose, the feelings of, you know, the grandiose self, you know, you know, uh, feelings, feelings about himself. Um, all that kind of thing is on display and cage does it brilliantly. Um, and Holt is, you know, Holt's the guy you, you really root for, you know, what, no matter what he does, whether he's playing a war boy in, in Fury Road or he's doing Romeo and Juliet or he's playing in, you know, the, you know, in the great, um, you, you, he's unafraid to be unlikable or weird or strange or, or flirt with unlikability. But at the same time, he's so charming and so vulnerable that you want to follow him and audiences want to root for him. And this is a movie that's got to, you got to root for this guy. You know, he, he ends the movie, you know, I don't know if this is coming out before the movie. That comes out or not, but he ends the movie, you know, uh, you know, reciting his affirmations while punching Dracula in the fucking face <laughs> with Dracula fang hands, um, like some sort of queer, weirdo Wolverine thing. Like, you know, uh, the, the, the movie could do that. Uh, you know, hopefully we earn that. That's the thing that's the most exciting, you know, for me. That, that's what excited me about the script. Well, because I read, I read in Total Film Magazine that you, you had said about casting Renfield that you kind of needed somebody, like you said, who, who could capture that vulnerability but can still get weird. What, what, yeah. was, was, it a, was it a tough road to find your Renfield or, or was it was it quite easy to fall on Nicholas Holt? Well, I, I, you know, when I met Nick Holt once before <laughs> this for a different movie and um, and I was and I always and I really liked meeting him and I was fascinated with his career. And when I read this script, um, my only thought was this movie doesn't work unless we get Nick Holt. I didn't see anybody else yeah. for the role. I was just like, this is the guy that this movie, you know, lives or dies by whether or not we can cast this guy. Cause there's, there's, there's Nick Holt and then for, for this kind of thing. And then not, you know, not a lot of other people. And so, um, so yeah, on the one hand, it was very easy because uh, uh, I just saw that one guy uh, and that's <laughs> who I wanted. And on the other hand, it's hard because obviously like he's a busy guy and doing a lot of things. And can you make his schedule work with, some other, you know, A-list actors scheduled to get to, to be Dracula. And fortunately, both Cage and Holt and Aquafina's character Aquafina's schedules worked out. So yeah, so we're really lucky that we were able to get everybody and and that, you know, you know, we we're able to make it work. Amazing. I'm I'm really interested to know what that that first meeting with Nicolas Cage was like. Obviously, like yeah. I, I'm a massive fan. Uh, in in the kind of press for this, I had a had a carrot dangled to me that I possibly could have interviewed him, and it was kind of like mm. that feeling alone was like, oh yeah. my god. So, what is it like for you? Obviously, you you get to meet kind of actors all the time and stuff like that, but like there is a certain uh, gravitas to Cage. I'm not yeah. just saying that as a fan. Like he kind of feels like an old school movie star in a way what yeah what was that initial meeting like with him no he, he is an old he is a movie star like he is an old school movie star like he's like so and there's there's very few of those people i mean I, you know i get nervous around people all the time like that's like you know that's like uh 
you know, for me, like, you know, because you're meeting your heroes, right? Mm -hmm. And Cage was somebody like I grew up with, you know, you know, from, from, you know, raising Arizona and, yeah. and, and, you know, you know, um, Peggy, she got married and, and Moonstruck and all of that stuff. Like, you know, those were movies that were, um, you know, big, you know, movies and then into, you know, the rock and con air and kiss of death and all the stuff he was doing red rock West. And, you know, like just, you know, just like amazing performance of performance. And he's a guy that I, like, I would go see his movies cause he's in it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, kiss of death, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe like, you know, the David Caruso or the Richard Price, I think wrote the scripts and like that, but you know, it was cage that I want to see because yeah. everyone's talking about, he puts in this really physical performance and he's like, and he's so great because again, talk about vulnerability. Like he plays this, and he's, he's really jacked up in that movie. That's like in the phase of his life where he's like getting like yeah. super jacked up for movies. And yeah, at the same time, he's got this fucking, you know, puffer, yeah. you know, <laughs> this puffer all the time. So he's playing this, like, you know, like really, you know, dangerous, you know, um, and it's a remake and Richard Widmark mm -hmm. played the original uh, version of it, but he plays this really guy who's really scary. And at the same time, he's good. You know, he's one breath away from fucking dying and he's got to have this puffer with him at all times. It's really, it's really a great performance. And that's, when, that's another movie where it's like, that movie's worth seeing just to see Cage. Yeah. You know, what, what do you think about anything else? And, you know, it's, it's, it's Cage is so good in that movie. Not many movies do you get to say you can see Nicolas Cage bench press a stripper bench, as well. Bench press a stripper, <laughs> exactly. He's like bench pressing a stripper in that movie. Was, yeah, and that angle too, they had down, uh, down on him while he's moving that off his camera's <laughs> Um, but yeah, like that's like that to me, you know, is so, uh, you know, he's, he's just this guy who's, we have a, a, you know, a deep love for, and he's done all of these different things. Like he's played every kind of, you know, avant-garde stuff to very real things. And he wins, wins an Oscar and, you know, and, and, you know, adaptation and just all the stuff that he's done. You know, it's just been, he's just had this amazing career. It could happen to you. I find him so charming yeah. and, it, and it could happen to you. And it's a, it's a, you know, he's not doing like, he's just playing a cop. You know, it's like, it's the, it's so not anything that you'd see would think about with Nick Cage, but he's just so good in it. And he's just so charming, you know, and he's got chemistry. Like he has chemistry with all the other actors, but he's got chemistry with the camera. Like he really, it, it, he's just a fucking movie star. And yet he's the nicest nicest person you'll ever meet like he's mm -hmm. just so genuine and real like real all the time and that's and the thing like like you were asking i think your question started with like what's it like to, you know the first conversation it's like the first conversation i had with him was like over a he was i think it was over a zoom but i don't think there was i don't think there was picture i think it was just over audio and we were just talking about the script and he was so enthusiastic and you know, and that's why he's on set. He's got this childlike enthusiasm. It's full of joy. He just wants to, he just loves making movies. Loves being on set. After all these movies that he's been in, he just, he shows up every day on set, even with the, you know, four hours of makeup. And he's had 20 pounds of good body makeup. He had everything on him, 20 pounds of makeup that he has to sit in a chair for four hours and do, and then come on and work a 10 hour, 12 hour a day. And, and then, and then go take it off. So it's like, and again, it's not, we're not, we're not, we're not curing cancer or anything when we're doing this stuff, but it's just like somebody that's that level in a world where the ego, it's so easy to get into an ego place, mm -hmm. you know, when you're, getting, when you're getting chauffeured around and all this stuff and people, you know, are trying to take care of it. It's so easy for people to get, you know, just like, just get twisted up about like what's real and what's not real. And here's this guy who's just like, 
He just wants to, he just wants to play and have fun exactly. and, and, and just create. And it's just, it's a, like I said, it's a joy to be around. And it's inspiring to be around both Holt and I were just like, every day it was like, wow, we're just fucking inspired to work with this guy. Well, everyone I've spoke to who's ever worked with him always says that like when he comes to set, he kind of knows the script back to front and kind of, yeah. do you know what I mean? He, he, he could do the lines any, book. any, any which book. way, but w what kind of, what kind of character quirks did he bring to, to Dracula? What did Dracula look like before Nick was cast? And what did, yeah, what did he bring to the room? Yeah. I mean, you know, he starts with a costume. It starts with, it starts with what he's wearing. And, you know, he was very, um, he had great ideas about costuming. He's got great ideas about everything. He had great ideas about script notes and, and line uh, changes and things like that, word changes. But it started with the costuming. It started with Lisa Lavas, who was another great partner. Lisa's amazing. And she and Cage started working on the costuming, started working on the rings. Cage was really big on the rings and wanted like a full set of rings. They had some very specific ideas about what should be in some of the rings and stuff like that. And that was really cool. And um, and he also like he also wanted um certain fabrics and stuff like that. Like we play a lot with a lot of the velvet and the rhinestones and mm -hmm. That sort of thing. And we were, but we were also, you know, I mean, that was the stuff that Cage brought to the table. And but and the stuff that we had talked about before Cage showed up was, you know, synthesizing some of the Bell Lugosi stuff with the Christopher Lee stuff with very modern cuts and, you know, cut, cut you know, as far as the shape and cut, but also like the collaring, like bring like a really high, a very regal collar, like something you'd, you know, you'd see like, you know, maybe more French cut mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and so there's lots of that stuff that kind of came and so it was just the synth you know once cage came on board of synthesizing that christian tinsley with the special makeup effects you know we talked a lot about like you know one point we were talking about like facial hair because you know the original the original bram stoker um as written had a, you know dracula had a mustache and all that kind of thing <laughs> it's meant to be very eastern european i mean really the the, the story of dracula was about sort of the fears of Eastern European immigration into London. Yeah, yeah. Like that's what sort of like the original text was kind of about. And sometimes that stuff is brought out a little bit more in different movies, but Dracula sort of stood for something. And I thought, oh yeah, what what, what if, you know, what if he had a, you know, a, you know, a beard and stuff like that. So we were playing around with stuff like, you know, that kind of thing. But ultimately like we settled on this thing. Like once we saw a cage and it was clean shaven, we did the, we did the white base paint and the widow's peak wig and stuff like that. Like it all came together in a really, really great, way and it just looks so good and christian did such a nice job with that and christian and, and cage worked together a lot on what the makeup what the eyebrows would feel like and th that kind of thing and yeah it was just a really great team collaboration and, and but you know it's all it's all based on like what you know once once cage got cast it's just like people just got really excited <laughs> like there's just a lot of excitement when he was cast in this movie as far as like through the crew it's just like it just and i'd been on the movie for like a couple months before we cast cage and it's just like it was just like it was it would, it just like sent a shockwave through everybody and everybody's game just like stepped up and they were just like you know on pins and needles like you know with excitement like when that first camera test when we had him in the full makeup and costume and you get him from the camera and i had all these candles you know on set for the camera test and all the smoke and it was playing like the score from coppola's dracula as he as he as he entered you know what i mean as he entered the room yeah. before he even got a camera and it just sets the tone and people just got like really psyched about about making the movie and that, that was that was a great you know kind of coalescing of everybody's like 
you know, you know, the, 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 all of their, you know, uh, hopes and dreams for this movie suddenly just like got kicked up a notch. Yeah. in the way that the kind of this film, like almost like as a bookend with Todd Browning's film, it's almost like a weird bookending with in kind of cages, like rise, we get vampires kiss and that yeah. as he's kind of like, I don't know, on this kind of new wave kind of coming out of like what some people obviously you don't have to comment on this but what some people would call a slump um like i i i don't particularly believe that anyway but kind of what what, what you read on the internet it's kind of great to see this mirroring that like it feels like a role that he's was born to play right because we've got yeah we have vampires kiss we have the fact that he produced shadow of the vampire and was going to play was, was yeah. yeah was going to play the uh the willem dafoe role at one point and yeah, it's kind of this, the casting, as soon as I saw it, I was like, this, this makes complete sense. Uh, so well, Cage, when he, when he was, when he was, when he was really young, his father um, played the movie Nosferatu for him when he was five years old. And so Cage saw the movie and, and Doc, Kevin, Dr. Calgary was five years old. And that made obviously a huge impression on him. Mm -hmm. That kind of silent movie acting, that kind of creepiness of all that. But that's, you know, I think that, that, that started his love of horror movies. That started his love of, you know, of, of his his love of movies in general, um, you know. And uh, and again, you see a lot of the way Cage uses body. He really uses like his hands and things in a way, and that a lot of that can be drawn back to, you know, to Kevin and Dr. Caligari and, and Max Schreck and, and Nosferatu. Amazing. So uh, another thing with this film as well is. This I guess a lot of people will be shocked at how kind of gruesome and violent it was. And you kind mm. of mentioned about that kind of slapstick horror, which I, I, I kind of reveled in any time there was kind of something gruesome. I was like, I'm mm. loving, I'm, I'm loving <laughs> this. And I, I'm always fascinated about the kind of, especially with like action, uh, like set pieces and stuff like that. Like, how do you, how do you go about it? Is, is it like, do you storyboard it? Like, yeah. What's the kind of practicalities to stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it starts with Chris Brewster, who's our stunt coordinator and second unit director. It starts with him, and basically he does, and we, we go over the scene, we talk about like, kind of like what our, you know, my hopes and dreams are and what I think a scene you know, needs, you know, action scene obviously needs a point and needs a, you know, goal and all that kind of thing. But I also said, like, it also has to be moments of, there's going to be moments of uh, violence that we need, that are meant to be funny, and there just needs to be an overall tone of humor to the to the scene there needs to be you know the the action has to be brutal because i like i like brutal action but it also has to be funny there mm -hmm. has to be moments it's either so brutal it's funny um or it's just or it just has like you know something that's inventive or, or whimsical <laughs> and, and so we studied like um besides obviously the studying you know modern any modern rational scenes of john wick or what have you but also study like jackie chan because there's no one funnier mm -hmm. as far as doing action scenes than Jackie Chan. And then it was like looking at um, the splat stick stuff in an Evil Dead movie, Evil Dead 2 specifically, and and the Dead Alive stuff that we talked about. And and bringing, you know, bringing Tinsley in uh, to it, Christian Tinsley, the special fake makeup guy. So Brewster would go off, he'd start to shoot something, block something together, on, you know, like with the stunt team. Sometimes we'd have access to the set early on, so he could do it there. Sometimes it's in a rehearsal space. But he'd go and he'd block all this stuff, add sound effects, add music, cut it together, and then we'd sit there and look at that. I'd go and maybe ask him to try one other thing, or I'd get the storyboard artist to draw some things, and then I would also, you know, show it to Christian, 
Tinsley. And then we would start to kind of brainstorm some things like, can we add this here? Can we do a face rip? Can we do this or whatever? And he would then go off and do some tests and his thing, shoot those tests. I'd marry all this stuff together. So basically you have a picture and audio blueprint, animatic picture and audio blueprint. That's a little bit of previs that kind of shows the stunts shows a little bit of some of the action that, you know, as far as the whimsical action that we wanted, um, some of the splat stick stuff that we wanted from Tinsley. You put all that stuff together and it kind of it kind of helps you make your day because you, now you've got a real solid blueprint. You know, what angles? Because obviously with stunts, there's only certain angles that work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because you're stacking punches. No one's hitting each other in the face or kicking each other in the chest or rarely <laughs> are you really doing that. You're, you got to stack it so it so it plays. So you're, so you're only, there's only certain angles that are going to work. So you kind of are starting to map out what your day looks like. And that's how you, and that's also where you get to play with tone. You get to figure out what music works and what doesn't you get to figure out how long or short something's going to last. And, um, and, and, and whether or not you can kind of push it some more, because obviously you're also want to try to, you know, kind of, you know, grow your ideas when you're doing this stuff. So when you're on set, you don't leave any money on the table. You can really go for it and get as much out of it as you can and then bring it back and then post, you know, be able to kind of like massage it more. Yeah, it seems like a, a real big part of this, like uh, something that you're passionate about and you kind of see it in the film is, is practical filmmaking. Is that something like, obviously, yeah, a lot of the effects look like, and I think I've seen, seen footage as well, like some behind the scenes stuff and it look, it looks kind of grewy and real. How important yeah. was it to be kind of practical effects as much as possible? I, I like shooting stuff practically. I mean, you know, you know, even on something like Tomorrow War where, where the, where the aliens were for the most part, you know, had to be CG. Um, I wanted us to be on as many practical sets and locations as possible to have, you know, practical, you know, muzzle flash, you know, like real muzzle flash and that sort of thing. And same with, same with Renfield, you know, where it's like, I like, you know, to be in places where, you know, the, where we're blowing squibs and we're, you know, we're blowing, you know, gallons of blood and things like that. And your cages in that makeup where it's like, yeah, some people would have just done that, put some dots on him and do a lot of that stuff. And later I wanted all that stuff to be real and tactile so that like, so the cage really feels the weight of this. And when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see himself. He sees this monster, you know? And so as much as possible, I wanted all that stuff to be, to be real. Cause I think it changes the performance. I think it changes it for the audience. Even if, you know, people think it looks fake or whatever. I don't, sometimes that's okay. I mean, especially in a movie like this, it can be kind of okay. Um, Cause it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's meant to be a little over the top and it's meant to be homage to that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. that stuff's kind of fun and, and um, and I think that you know the, even the dumb puppet that we use in the beginning <laughs> of the movie. I mean, it's, it doesn't look you know real, but it's fun. It's fun and it gets yeah. a laugh, you know, because it's just sort of silly and yeah, you yes. know, burnt version of Dracula. Yeah, yeah, especially when you have those kind of reference points of like Evil Dead Two yeah. and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Like the kind of claymation in the original of it's, that, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like doesn't really stand up now, but we we all love it as kind of like gory yeah. horror fans. Um, yeah. Another thing I had to. Yeah, one really wanted to mention was the kind of set design and the lighting in this because it's kind of like this. It it really sets a tone to the movie. Like how how yeah. how early on did that come? Was was that like, how paramount was that to the look of the film for you? 
Yeah, I think there was like two things when I read the script that were reasons why I wanted to do the movie. One is to do a you know a movie about code of you know codependent relationship between Dracula and, and Renfield. That was something that was you know like the the story of this you know Renfield going through this redemptive arc. That was something that was really important. The second thing that was really important to me, and and you know you sort of thought if everything else goes wrong, I can, you know at least the movie will do this. And I I, I wanted to try to imitate um, the art style of Basil Gogos. Basil Gogos was this guy who um, did these paintings of the old Universal monsters. At, at, at the time that Basil Gogos came around, the Universal monsters had only been seen in black and white, so no one had ever seen them. What they looked like in color, uh -huh. they just seen you know Frankenstein, Dracula, and Wolfman, etc., in black and white. And Basil Gogos did these covers for Famous Monsters magazine, which is this old school magazine out here in the states, and. It, it's it he did he interpreted Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman in color with these really garish, um, really saturated colors. Mm. And for me, doing like a horror comedy and trying to differentiate it from because you got to make it feel a little real, you know, for for a modern audience, the movie has to feel real on some level. So I knew shooting wise, we weren't going to necessarily like ape like an old movie style for the whole movie. We could do a bit you know, in the beginning to sort of go back to the Todd Browning movie. But the movie has to feel like a modern movie. And so I wanted to shoot it like a Tony Scott movie as much as possible. But by doing it with the color scheme and saturation of these Basil Gogos paintings. So that's why, you know, everyone's got kind of the colors are really saturated and the they're, they're, they're sort of lit sometimes either top down or this underlit stuff and things and things like that with really big color. And Alec Hammond, the production designer, is an incredible artist um, and really great partner. And he built all those sets. He and his team, Chris Crane, a bunch of really great guys, um, guys and girls came in and just did some amazing stuff. The set decorating team did incredible stuff with all the sets, Gary tours on the props. They built all this wonderful stuff and sets that we could light from, I like practical lighting, talk, you know, talk about practical effects. I like practical lighting and sets as much as mm -hmm. possible. I don't want to bring a lot of lights in. I want to be able to have the camera go around and find stuff where where we can. So try to do as little lighting as possible and try to do everything as practically as possible. So that coda meeting, that's that sets entirely lit from above and some 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 things outside the windows and that's it. Every there's no there's there, there's very little uh, sometimes um Andy and the guys would bring in just like a little light next to the camera we're doing close-ups and stuff like that like a little soft light um to create a little more beauty. But other than that, everything's lit from above because I wanted it to feel like what it feel like if you're in a if you're in one of those you yeah. know self help meetings. It's just yeah. like top lighting, the gymnasium coming down on you. He shaped it, it's shaped so that it does a certain thing and falls off in a beautiful way. So it's not like it's like he just threw something up. It's shaped in a really delicate way. And then Dave Cole, who was uh, our colorist, came in and did really really fine, delicate work to highlight the colors. To, to carve off some of the, you know, lighting and things like that and really shape it some more. So it's, so it's all these teams, it's all these different departments coming in and doing this really great work costuming, Lisa's costumes, yeah. obviously pitch a certain color and things like that in order to get a certain amount of saturation and, and life out of the costumes. So really, yeah, really great, uh, really great team. Yeah. So yeah, it looks, it looks fantastic. Um, I wanted to know as well, like how much is kind of your work in animation kind of, uh informed like your your yeah your your live action filmmaking is it, do you feel like they've 
Is it uh, to, to either inform the other or yeah, what are the similarities yeah, and differences? Absolutely. Like the, you know, especially when we're talking about that thing, when we're talking about animatics. I mean, you, when you, when you're doing animation, you're building these, you know, you're building storyboards that then become these, you know, previs um, reels and these layout reels. And so you are building these things so that what, you know, one, you know, storyboards is helping the next department see, you know, how they want it blocked. And then that department helps, helps, helps the animation, the animation team see it. And, and, and then that helps the lighting team. So you are building these things. And so, um, and I, and it, to me, that's a great way to kind of get a first take at what your story is doing and try to figure out if the, you know, if you're, if you're getting the tone or not, or if you can achieve, you know, what, what more you can get out of the tone if possible. So that's, you know, I love, I always try to bring in some of these animation tools because I think every filmmaker should should do an animated movie, do a short film, do something because it's it's storytelling in slow motion, and you get yes. a lot of you get you get to really get uh, you get to figure out exactly you know what uh, you know sometimes what your story and character needs. And animation is really great because you're spending you know even you know cheap animation you know there's 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 very these days that you know you're spending a million dollars a minute probably on an mm -hmm. animated movie something like that so you got to really make sure it's jam-packed with story and character information and so as much as i can try to get as much story and character out in a live action thing that's what i'm trying to do i'm always trying to fill the frame with information uh, as much as humanly possible you talk about filling the frame there i noticed uh whilst watching this you kind of had a couple of actors who people may notice so caroline williams and william mm -hmm. ragsdale were that yeah. were that were they purposely popped in there for obviously their kind of horror credentials? Yeah. Look, if I if it had been up to me, I would have cast you know way more. <laughs> I would have, I, every part would have been filled with someone from an old from a you know horror movie that meant something to me. Yeah, Carolyn Williams from Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, and a bunch of other movies. She's wonderful and a lot of fun to work with. And I really wanted to do something with her. And I actually looked at her for Tomorrow War at one point because I wanted her to be part of the army of the ordinary in tomorrow war and William Ragsdale, um, you know, obviously the fright night connection, but he's also like, you know, just like, you know, um, he did justified and, and some, some, he's been doing, I think he was on the Ozark or something like that where I saw him. He just does some, he's done some really great stuff. He's still like a really fine actor. And I just, I just, you know, because he was, you know, in fright night and, you know, kind of, you know, now he's sort of playing the Roddy McDowell role, I guess. <laughs> movie he's playing the vampire hunter as opposed to the you know the kid who sees the, sees the rear window vampire situation but uh yeah he's he's awesome he was great amazing amazing so what what i'm fascinated about is obviously throughout your career you've kind of played in these amazing sandboxes not just in kind of ip obviously you've done like yeah some groundbreaking animation you did a sci-fi action movie and now a horror comedy is there like a which all kind of especially with the the latter two feel like genres that i don't know like aren't really that served that much is like and it kind of feels oh, like yeah. yeah like is there is there like a, a not, any other genres that you would like to like tackle in the future that you kind of haven't yet yeah i mean i'm always looking for something new i think that's the thing is i'm looking for something that's going to be you know whether it's new that's out there or new um, that's original you know like you know i mean obviously you know with uh lego batman that's there's an ip there but i was but you know the the thing that was super hooky for me was you know you're gonna tell you're gonna tell batman story in a way uh that no one else can can tell it you're gonna actually solve batman's problem which there's <laughs> no upside there's no upside to that in a live action batman movie because it sort of makes sequels tough 
Um, but, uh, but to be able to do a story where you actually kind of get into Batman's, you know, like, in, you know, stuff and solve it, maybe that seemed really appealing. Tomorrow Wars, you know, like I said, military sci-fi action movie, um, that we don't do a lot of, but are such a fun mm-hmm. genre and, 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 but, but it's hard, you know, it's a father and daughter story and that's what was really appealing. And it's, it's, I'm looking for genre stuff that has an emotional, human component to it, you know, Dracula Renfield codependency and yeah. that sort of thing. Even, even, even in a sort of a, you know, big silly comedy with, you know, splat stick humor and action that there can be, you know, something about codependency in the movie. I thought that, you know, to me, that's what it was appealing. So that's probably what I'm looking for. You know, I, I would love to do like a, like a movie that takes place in outer space or another planet. I think that would be a lot of fun. Like that's something I'm sort of actively looking for. I also really like fantasy and there's a couple of there's a couple of books that I've been reading that I, that I'd love to turn into um, a movie and and then kind of like um, I mean I know this sounds like all over the place but like you know there's a series of of um, I'm a big James Elroy fan and a big sort of like what I would call like you know film noir mm-hmm. you know but not film noir type novels and and that world and there's a couple of authors whose books I really love that I'd like to turn into. A movie or turn their you know book series into a tv show or something like that so there's still those things things those are some things along the way that i love to, love to sink my teeth into amazing i have i have two quick questions for you to wrap up uh, one of them i'd be remiss not to ask you because i uh i recently watched lego batman again for i don't know how many times i've watched it with my four-year-old son he's kind of besotted by it and on the last rewatch i i, I told him i was going to be speaking to you and I said, do you, do you have any questions about this film? He had one solitary question for you, Chris, which is how many Lego bricks did it take to make that film? <laughs> I used to have that answer. Hold on. I used to have that answer. And it's I was obviously in the millions. Um, uh, I used to have the exact answer, but I uh, let's, let's just say it was like, you know, you know, uh, 1.5 million Lego bricks or something like that. But it's, it's, it's a lot, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and we, you know, we do up in at animal logic where we made the movie in Sydney. Um, you know, we, they are, uh, there are bricks, individually made bricks there in CG that, that we make and age and stuff like that. So that the movie feels like it feels tactile mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, so the guys work really hard to make that stuff uh, feel real. Amazing. Well, yeah, you 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 would have made uh, a little four-year-old's day with that with that answer. <laughs> my final question is: I always ask my guests on this podcast as a, as a closing question. Obviously, you've got a horse in the race with this, but what is what is your favorite Nicolas Cage movie? Renfield can't count. Renfield can't count. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I you know, I think. I, you know, I really liked, uh, I really liked The Rock. Uh, I think that's, I think he's so good in that movie. He and Sean Connery are so much fun. I think all the actors are having a good time. I think it's the Michael Bay's best movie. It's most accessible and, and fun movie. Um, and it, Cage's performance and adaptation as mm-hmm. the two brothers just tickles me. Every time I watch it, yeah. I just, I just love it so much I just love watching him in that movie he is so he's so good in both roles i just i just and so endearing i just really you know no matter what anybody thinks of that movie which i think is a great movie i just i just i just he is so watchable 
in that movie. I, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I, I love it. What's your, what's your answer? It, change, it changes all the time. Red Rock West's got a special place in my Red, heart. Red Rock uh, West is a solid movie. That's when, <laughs> that's jacked up age. That's, that's when he's in the you know jacked up days. Yeah. 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 Well, Chris, well, he's still a solid guy. Like <laughs> you're on one day and I like, I like was like, it was like patting him or kind of you put my hand on the shoulder to guide him over here. And he's still like, He's still like a, you know, he's still built. Like he's still a really solid guy. I was really surprised that he's like, he still works out. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. And again, congratulations on Renfield. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did you like, did you like the movie? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it on Tuesday. So yeah, we, um, yeah. uh, One of the film journalists that I, I kind of know him, from doing the podcast and he said i've got to sit next to you it's like because how often do you get to sit next to like yeah. a guy a guy who's like so so kind of into the cage like oeuvre yeah. that you yeah. get to experience a film with them so yeah i i, I was kind of I, I i i loved it i can't wait to watch it again obviously as soon as it's kind of out here in cinemas i'll be i'll be watching it next friday that's cool well thank you for reaching out to do this this is a wonderful yeah, thank love you man thank yeah. you so much chris Cheers. Good talking to you. Take care. Bye. There we have it, guys. Chris McKay. Hopefully by now you have all seen Renfield. I would be I'm dying to know what you think about it. Let please do let me know. You can find me on all the socials at Caged in Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Or you can drop me an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Yeah, well, let's have a little chat. Let's talk about Renfield. As I said, I'm going to cover this film at a later date when I can kind of give it the full caged in treatment instead of something a little bit more rushed. You would have heard that if you'd listened to the previous episode on this feed if, if, if you're listening to this right now to have released or in the future look at the episode below this and it was a conversation i had with the star of this film nicholas holt which is absolutely mind-boggling that that happened it's kind of absolutely blows my mind that i got to do that and uh the time i recorded the kind of intro and outro for that episode i was like i think i was still in the shock of of doing it like i kind of came out of it and chatting to people i i knew who knew that i was doing it and they're like how did it go and i was like you know what i have no actual idea i felt like in the moment that just my ears were a whooshing sound and then i was like i just asked my next question when he stopped talking and um i feel like if i'd had more time classic uh, i would have done a lot better like, uh, i feel i feel like my unique selling point is you warm to me and i'm not sure if i'm instantly somebody who who who, who is who's appealing maybe not maybe you can let me know guys if that is the case uh, <laughs> so as for next week here on the pod i've got a great conversation coming up with a guy called Jason Zenowick, who has a Nicolas Cage Dracula tattoo. I'm not sure if you might have seen this on socials. It kind of got a bit buzzy, got a bit like uh, viral. Uh, at the Overlook Festival, he got invited on stage by Nicolas Cage to show off his, his tattoo. And he then got his legs signed and then that tattooed underneath the tattoo 
of Nicolas Cage as Dracula. And we talk about his whole journey, how it got to, how he got to that place being on that stage. It's a fun, wild journey. We get into stuff about fandom. We even talk about science because uh, Jason is a science teacher. So it was an amazing conversation and a really lovely guy. And it's conversations like that and that are just as important to me as the ones like with Nicholas Holt because it's the fandoms, right? Like these films almost don't exist without nice, passionate fans. We're not talking about the toxic fandom. That's a whole different conversation. We're talking about nice, reasonable people who like the films and kind of go out and support actors that they love. And yeah, Jason is one of them. And he's kind of a, a man after my own heart. And we, we kind of get into it. So yes, do, do, do stick around and listen to that one next week. I know for some people, like they go, oh, don't, don't know who the person is or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, like well, they're not talking about a film. Who, who is, who is this guy? Trust me, it's a really fun conversation and you won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast, please feel free to head on over to patreon.com forward slash Pod, where you can get a little bit of, uh, yeah, you get a little bit of bonus content for a little bit of money. You give us more money, I'll, I'll shake my booty until it falls off. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, do, do that. Or head on over to tpublic.com forward slash cagedinpod or cagedinpod.etsy.com to grab one of our brand new t-shirts got a few designs up on etsy there's two designs up on etsy at the moment and there's five designs up on tpublic i'm meaning to uh, put the other designs up on etsy as well uh, and yeah tpublic if you're in the us please order from there it's much lower shipping if you're in the uk order from etsy it works out a better deal for you works out like slightly better deals it just it just makes it nice and easy for everyone in that way it's kind of yeah you 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 get your t-shirts in a timely fashion without paying ridiculous money on shipping which is one thing i didn't want to do that's why i kind of signed up to to, to both of them to make it nice and fair for you the listeners so if you don't want to part with any money but would still like to support the podcast you can do that by heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now if they have a system to rate and review please do so leave five stars and in your review please do let me know what bill murray says to scarlett hansen at the end of lost in translation and i'll be sure to read out the best ones planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns here on the podcast so as ever guys i've been petrus patsilowis i've been caged in you've been amazing and i'll catch you next time
This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limerie, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.